0: Hello and welcome to the Leap of Faith. On tonight's programme from Balana to Beijing and back again.
1: There are nine million bicycles in Beijing. That's
0: a fact. We'll hear about the experiences of missionary priest Father Joseph Loftus, who's returned to Ireland after 25 years in China. We'll also hear about the work of a priest closer to home the late Father Jack Delaney, whose personal film collection is now one of the most popular sources of social insight in the Irish Film Institute's archives. Later, I'll also talk with Dr Lorna Gold of Throchera about faith and ecology in the midst of a climate crisis. But first, Father Jack Delaney served in parishes in Dublin's inner city and suburbs for over 50 years, from the 1930s until his death in 1982. He was a parish priest based mainly around Sean McDermott Street, then Gloucester Street. Rutland Street and Gardner Street. During that time, he filmed scenes on a 16mm cine camera, capturing parades, nuns and women of a Magdalene laundry, sports days and a Dunleary to Hollyhead mailboat. This treasure trove of archive film has been edited together into a programme, Father Delaney, Silent Witness, which you can see next Thursday on RTE1 Television. And we're joined in the studio this evening by Father Jack Delaney's niece, Irene Devitt, and from the Irish Film Institute by the head of the Irish Film Archive, Cassandra O'Connell. Cassandra and Irene, welcome to the programme.
1: Irene, who was Father Jack? Father Jack was my uncle, my dad's brother, obviously, and he was a priest for over 54 years. And But my memories of them are, first of all, we used to go every Christmas all the way from the Navin Road, where I was born and bred, all the way to uh, Dun where he was all the time I knew him when I was a child. And then from about the age of nine, uh, two of my sisters and myself, Vimel and Sheila, used to go on holidays, which was a big deal because we had to get a bus into town. I, my dad used to bring us into town, and then he put us on the seven or eight, whatever bus it was then. And Father Jack's housekeeper, Molly, would meet us there, right at Woolworths. That's where the bus used to stop. And we used to have a holiday, and he was the most extraordinary uncle. Through him, we got to know the Vale of Avoca so well, because he used to take us on these trips. We got to know the Vico Road very well, because we did loads and loads of walking with him. But what we really learned in the summer, and when we went out at Christmas, was always be prepared to do your party piece. He was a very good singer himself and he ran the choir in St Michael's in Dun for many, many years. One of his favourite past pupils was Ronnie Drew, whose son I met recently, Selim. And uh, so you always went with something prepared and he was so encouraging. He would tell you you were marvellous. Sometimes you were, sometimes you weren't. Right. But anyway, so that's easy. Do you
0: remember him having the camera with him?
1: Yes. When he would come up to the Navan Road and there were nine of us. We were a big family and I can remember us going in uh, from top to bottom and he taking all of us, you know, the full, the full uh, family. But he took all weddings and he loved, and you'll see from the footage, he loved processions, right? And I often think well, they were such a big thing in our day. Because after your whole communion, you kept your dress, or you kept your—you know—you had to have It was—we used to do it about th- four times in May in those days. I mean, people, youngsters now wouldn't believe it, but that was a social occasion. So, you no, know, he—he used it a lot. But in those days, he had to send it to England for processings. And it used to take three weeks. And then when we would go out in the summer or at Christmas, we'd sit down in an enormous dining room he had in a Blanna Avenue, just behind the church, and he would show the, the films. And every time, we think he used to do it purposely, he used to break down. And of course, he had to do all these. <laughs>
0: splice them together. <laughs> splice again.
1: them together. I mean, he was very good
0: at it. I'm curious about uh, the idea, though, that this box of films, you'd watch them as a child. Mm. What happened
1: to them then? Well, when he left Dunleary after twenty four years, they moved him I don't I never decided whether it was a, a kind act or an unkind act. He was twenty four years there, he loved Dunleary and then the church went on fire and it nearly killed him. He was so, so sad about it. And then they moved him to Enniscary. I don't think he ever used it when he went used the, the film when he went to his camera when he went to Enniscary. I don't think so. Right, because no, n- we never saw anything out. But I do know that he came, of course, Earths for Terrace uh, for my graduation, and he certainly took that, but I never saw it. So whether it was never sent and then it was uh, maybe thrown out or whatever, I never. we never relocated the camera itself, right? And that was very important down through the years. And then he died, and we never thought of anything like that. And then my own godmother, his sister-in-law, Andy Greta, she was moving... Back to Ranala and I was out one day with her and she said would you like all this stuff (laughs) (laughs) so I had to take this amount of a very huge amount of um, paper music and then all these these uh, films it was just the box that arrived so I brought it home and I lived with a very uh, enthusiastic film buff called John and all I was interested in was the family stuff but he nearly had a heart attack when he saw the great film. And he was amazed with the Rutland Street, the Gloucester Diamond, as he always called it, he never called it, uh, where the Magdalene laundries are. Sean McDermott Street, yeah. McDermott Street. OK, but it was always the Gloucester Diamond to us. Um, the footage in, which we thought was extraordinary, in O'Connell's, where you see the, the Christian brothers playing croquet. I mean, this was atom to us. And... Um, yeah, he had some footage of the Blackrock juniors playing their, their rugby. Uh, he was just really all around. He just was interested in everything.
0: What inspired right. you to donate it to the archives? Oh, well,
1: that was that was a tussle. <laughs> right. Sorry, Sandra. Right. <laughs> I got this and I had to actually get a projector. Unfortunately, in the school where I was, it was a Cundidum kind of B E C school, and they had one. I couldn't believe it because at that stage we were all using um, DVDs. And discovered there was one there and we sat down. And then after a while he said, a week or two later, now you must put that into the IFI. It had only started really, hadn't it? Yeah. Right. And I was, didn't say no, I know what's mine is my own. It took him a while to tell me that I wouldn't lose ownership. Now if he told me that immediately, <laughs> I'd have handed this stuff over. So in we went and signed a contract and the whole lot were handed over his object was John's object was that it wouldn't be lost and I didn't really appreciate until I'd say the last five, six years the number of requests that have been made from the archives so that's how it came
0: Well, also with this right. is Cassandra O'Connell Cassandra in your role as, as head of the archive uh, can you set the context and the importance of this particular collection?
2: This collection is one of our amateur what we call our non-commercial collections so collections that were made by people who took a record of everyday life in Ireland in a non-commercial context, so they were doing it for their, uh, their own love of society, of filmmaking, to create a record of um, what was happening around them. And a number of clergy did this in Ireland, um, but Father Delaney, I think, is one that was particularly important because of a number of factors. He is a particularly good filmmaker, He has a very good eye. He has a very steady hand with the camera. What you find with people who aren't professional filmmakers is that they move around a lot. The aerosol
0: effect. Exactly. So you don't get a
2: steady Mm. frame. Mm. Um, But he is confident enough to keep the camera still. So you get a really nice image lingers on the subjects so you get a very good connection with the people that he is framing so I think in his role as parish priest there is a level of trust there and obviously a level of responsibility um, for his parishioners that comes across and it's a really nice insight into relationships as well there's a lovely insight into working class community that we don't have elsewhere in our archive In terms of Irish film production, Ireland doesn't have a rich history of Indigenous filmmaking between, say, the early 1900s to when RTE started, for instance, in the 1960s. There's very little filmmaking. We didn't have um, a film industry as such. So everyday life in Ireland hasn't really been recorded. So the only record that we have is this kind of activity and there isn't that much of it.
0: There's a little dissonance when you look at, for example, the film of the Magdalene laundries and you see these happy women playing on on, and playing, I think they're throwing a ball to each other or something like that. Uh, It it does cause a little confusion to the viewer when you look
2: at it. I think there's two things there. Um, I think something that's definitely real um, within that footage is the relationships between the the women, the Magdalene's. Um, There's definitely... Um, a level of sincerity um, in the relationships between the Magdalens, then that's something that that is real. That's not something that's being manufactured for the camera. I think that anybody in any circumstance is going to perform for the camera and obviously they knew that the camera was coming and they have been put in a situation where they're wearing their Sunday best and they're performing to a certain degree. But I... Don't think it's fair to say that they have been forced into demonstrating
0: something that is completely. Hmm. Not Irene, you fair. actually yeah. went to one of the Magdalenes yes, with we, your uncle.
1: Oh, we went about three consecutive years because Father Jack. What he did was he invited us when he knew two two um, things were taking place. One was. Blackrock rock baths when they had their regatta, whatever, whatever you call it, that. And the other was the um, concert of the girls, right? So I was actually there when, when he fi- filmed what you actually see. And um, all our impression was that it was a very joyful place. Obviously with hindsight, I think lost a few nights sleep. Did he know what was going on in the back? way? Well, he did know there was a laundry, he wasn't stupid. He was a bright guy, quiet but bright. Um, very observant obviously and I don't think he was ever brought into the laundry and if he was they were probably on their best anyway and the nice nuns were probably there but um he was sent down to the Magdalene Laundry. That's where, and he loved going down. They were very nice to him there, and always at the end of it the, used to. Have, it was really very good, and the girl, the girls certainly were very happy doing it. And apparently there would be six weeks beforehand when they would be making the costumes and all that. So it was a very inclusive, yeah. very good time for them. And then always at the end he would get up at the stage and he would do the deck of cards. So if I heard the deck of cards once, I heard it very well, right? And always ended with. And I was that soldier. We knew he wasn't, soldier. right, when you're eight. We started going out when you're about seven or eight, right? And he always said at the end. And it was a beautiful day. He said he would bring the camera if it was beautiful day. He wouldn't if it was raining because it wouldn't be good for the shots, obviously.
0: Well, the programme is on this Thursday evening, uh, the 24th of October at quarter past ten on RT1 Television. Irene Devitt, thank you for joining us on the programme. Cassandra very O'Connell, O'Connell, thank you too. Thank you for thank having you. us. Well, next this evening from treasured glimpses into the lives of people living in Dublin to the life-changing experience of one missionary priest from County Mayo. Vincentian priest Father Joseph Loftus has been based in St. Peter's Church in Phibsborough in Dublin for the past year. But for a quarter of a decade before that, his life was in China, where he witnessed firsthand the radical transformation
3: of that country. Joseph, welcome to The Leap of Faith. How did you find yourself in Beijing? It all started with the Catholic Directory of 1946, which I fell across when I was a young novice, when I was asked to clean out a storeroom in the seminary in Black Rock in County Dublin. And I was fascinated to read about the detail of the Catholic Church in Beijing and just how much was recorded about the church there. And in 1976, As far as we knew, it had all disappeared. And the contrast between the detail of 46 and the zero of the then uh, fascinated me. And I began to study um, the church in China and also the connection between the order to which I belong, the Vincentian order, and the church in Beijing particularly. We had been there since uh, 1699, and I was... unaware of it because it had fallen out of the memory of the generation of priests who were teaching me. And I followed up on that and kept reading and became back in that time what was called a China watcher, someone who read what was coming out of China, what little was coming out of China, read the history, was relatively well informed. And then much later, the superior general uh, took an active interest in China and went there and then asked for volunteers who would consider going back and I put my hand up and was accepted. I spent two years uh, learning Chinese on Taiwan with our community there and then went to live in Beijing as a teacher of English, did that for two years and then I went back to live in Taiwan for a while and then from 2002 until 2018 I lived continuously in Beijing. Okay now let's go back a little bit to what 1976? Yeah, yeah. What was coming
0: out of China then uh, that 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 people would have known on a day-to-day basis?
3: Uh, The Gang of Four was about the biggest news of the day. That was the end of the Cultural Revolution and we were beginning to experience a China that was changing. Now, we knew nothing of the church because nothing began to come out of the church until the early 80s, and it was still just a very thin trickle. But by the end of the 80s, uh, you began to hear of real things going on and the possibilities of foreigners going in uh, as part of the general move back into China, the the beginnings of the economic um, miracle, uh, shall we say, in China, which was beginning uh, then with uh, Deng Xiaoping and so on, created possibilities of exchange that had corollaries for the Catholic Church as well. I'm not to get a picture in my mind of uh, a group
0: of, for example, Chinese people in a small village who would be Catholic, and those who would be accessing the services of visiting missionary priests to learn English at a fairly high level in society.
3: Yeah. Uh, what was that split? Well, you have to realise that historically the Catholic mission had to be to the non-educated branch of the society because the rights issue, which was uh, an issue from the 17th century basically, uh, meant that people who were in public life could not become Catholics because they had to perform ceremonies which were unacceptable to the Catholic religion at the time. And so, until very recently, Catholicism in China was a very rural phenomenon. So the, the average Catholic in China was a farmer. And while there were exceptions and there were significant uh, uh, groups of Catholics in Shanghai and Beijing who were at the highest echelons of the imperial society and the republican society afterwards, by and large, the average Catholic was a farmer. So that has endured through the Cultural Revolution and is only now being broken up by the internal migration uh, but to 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 answer your question, you could have uh, a experience of people in a village in China who, as far as they were concerned, everyone was Catholic because it was part of the policy of the missionaries to bring people who are Catholics together and form Catholic villages. I wouldn't like to suggest that, that China is a place where Catholicism is free. Uh, but to... Imagine it's only faith of our fathers, penal times, mass rocks, and secrecy is 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 to miss another side of the story.
0: because we do hear that if you know for example, we've heard it in relation to people of the Muslim faith, if, if that they're if they' not fitting in, there's a process of re-education or camps we've heard about as well. so so there is a A level beyond which, if you put your your nose over, you'll draw your attention to the government.
3: Yes, but one has to be very careful uh, to understand what's going on there. In the same way as in the 70s, people in France were asking me, why are Catholics and Protestants in the north of Ireland fighting each other? Uh, They just couldn't understand why you would be beating up a Protestant or a Catholic simply because they were Catholic. Now, we know it's much more complicated Mm -hmm. than that. In China, there is terrible things happening, as far as I know, and I read nothing more than anyone else reads in the newspaper in Xinjiang and in the West. But it's tied into identity, um, race. Uh, that, is, that is aligned with religion, and we know all about that in this country. And so is the issue uh, one of persecution of Islam or persecution of minorities who are seeking separatism? I think it's wrong that they should be treated in this way, but I suspect that the, the driver of the uh, imprisonment and, uh, and, and the camps is separatism, which is a huge issue for the Chinese government. Now, you were
0: there for 25 years.
3: Yeah. And you're home. Home, yes. What do you miss? What do I miss? I miss northern Chinese cooking because uh, I've been to many restaurants here in Ireland and most of them are southern Chinese. What has changed, though, uh, compared to when I left, is that Mandarin is common Uh, I have lovely experiences as recently as today of meeting somebody who is Mandarin speaking and being able to talk to them but the one I enjoy most is in the school where I uh, work, uh, the parish I work uh, there are quite a number of Chinese children in the school and I come in and I speak to them in Chinese and you can see that their brains are going into overdrive trying to work out why is this foreigner speaking to me in Chinese so I must be hearing him wrong so I answer him in English (laughs) and they they get the question I ask him what color are you painting that balloon and they reply it's green and I said but don't you speak Chinese and they answer yes I speak Chinese so and then after a while they realize that there's something they have to process this strange idea that the Irishman is speaking Chinese what brought you back from Beijing to Fibsburg in Dublin Well, um, that's an interesting question. I reached the age of 60 and decided that if I was going to uh, come home, I should come home when I could still engage with Irish society and work here and have a sense of belonging here rather than be a missionary who returns. Uh, If you've seen, there's a, what's that uh, play, Dancing at Lunasa. Uh, there's a missionary in that, and I said I didn't ever want to be him. I wanted mm-hmm. to be—he's—he sort of is still in Africa, even though he's living with his his uh, sisters in in uh, in Ireland, and is not engaged. He can't engage. He's too old. I'd wanted to be come back and engage so that when um, uh, retirement, whatever that means, comes. I'll have people locally and experiences locally that I can engage with rather than being the one who keeps talking about when he was in China. But you know that, you know, you come home and whether it's the returned person from China or the returned person from America, comparisons
0: are going to happen. They're yes, inevitable. Yes. What comparisons are you forced into on a regular oh, basis? Oh, you've
3: just woken in me a memory of the returned Yank that I had, for- had never thought of myself as being. But I suppose I am. I am the returned Yank. Um, and I've returned to a very different Ireland, an Ireland where migration has transformed the the the, the country in a way that I find very exciting. Uh, but it's still, I take the buses a lot. One of the things of being in China, I never drove in China, so my default mode of transport is public transport now. And so many languages, constantly, and I find that very exciting. And the school that I work in, St. Peter's School in Fibsborough, has I think it's 54 nationalities in the school. Mm. And I find that very exciting.
0: Finally, Joseph, they say you can take the man out of China. Can you take China out of the man? Yeah, well,
3: I have given 25 years to being in a country and I loved it. I mean, I had a ball on the missions, as it were. Uh, I did things that I would never have been able to do had I stayed at home. I discovered things about myself that I hadn't ever thought I would do. I became a marathon runner and having been a couch potato all my life, it was, it's still something my family think is crazy. (laughs) They just can't see it, Uh, but uh, that, those changes, I wouldn't want them undone and although I have. Keep saying temporarily abandoned my career on the road. Um, no, I, I don't think you can. I have been changed by the experience. I hope for the better, and I look forward to um, changing more in the future. Please God, Father Joseph Loftus, in Ingaida. Finally, this
0: evening, Dr. Lorna Gold is project coordinator of Ladate C for Trokera. She holds a PhD in Economic Geography and lectures at Maynooth University, and she's a member of the Irish Government's Advisory Group on National Climate Dialogue. And next Wednesday, she's a keynote speaker at the Three Faiths Forum conference in Dublin. And Lorna joins me now on the line. Lorna, tell me more about the event next week.
4: So the event is organised by an interfaith group called the Three Faiths Forum Ireland, and they are hosting a special meeting in the Mansion House to look at the whole question of climate change, uh, intergenerational justice, and how religious uh, communities can help to support the transition to to a low carbon future. So it's going to be a very um, interesting event. We have I'm giving the keynote address. Then we have uh, Rabbi Zalmat Lent, from the leader of the Jewish community, responding. Sister Nellie McLaughlin, a wonderful speaker, also given a response. And then Dr Ali Selim, who's representing the Islamic Cultural Centre of Ireland, will also be uh, responding as part of a panel discussion. So it's a free event in the Mansion House, and we hope there'll be a really good turnout.
0: And what's the focus of your keynote?
4: I will be really um, discussing what is the specific role that religious communities faith communities can play in tackling the climate crisis. So I'll be talking there about the, the whole question of like how our, our theology or moral teachings, how that reflects on, um, let's say, ecological um, behaviour, then looking at the whole question of spirituality. And I think the, the kind of fact that people more and more are asking, uh, certainly in the, the circles I'm moving in, the question where, where is God in this crisis is such a momentous crisis and there's a rising sense of eco-anxiety um, amongst young people and uh, older people as well on this. So uh, asking that question, how can our communities help to address this um, eco-anxiety uh, issue? And then I think I'll also be looking at the kind of more institutional responses because religious communities have a huge carbon footprint uh, ecological footprint worldwide but that also is an opportunity if we get our act together to say okay well what's our plan to reduce let's say the carbon footprint of the catholic church or the carbon footprint of um, different jewish communities um, or islamic communities so i'll be putting out some uh, fairly like kind of uh, clear challenges to people there as well like we need to get our act together and start to really practice what we're preaching
0: but science and faith can be quite uncomfortable bedfellows at times. How do you square that circle?
4: I think that um that science and faith they don't necessarily need to be in, in contradiction with each other. I think that faith is uh, brings us it's, it's about the narrative, the the stories that that we tell ourselves about the purpose of existence. Obviously science and scientific facts tell us really I would say much more in terms of the what we learn about the, the, the mechanics and the, the functional questions of existence, but they're not the same thing. I think the deeper questions of purpose um, come from from faith, from religion, or can come from faith and religion. They don't necessarily, but it can offer us some, let's say, deeper kind of considerations around. We, where we come from, in in a more kind of is existential uh, perspective.
0: Well, Lorna, that event is on next Wednesday, the twenty third, in the Mansion House in Dublin, and uh, you say the event is free for anybody to attend if they wish.
4: Yes, next Wednesday at seven fifteen in the Mansion
0: House. Dr. Lorna Gold, thank you for joining us on the Leap of Faith.
4: Thank you very much.
0: And that's the Leap of Faith for this week. From producer Sheila Callan and me, Michael Cummin. Good night.
2: And you can hear that programme again on Sunday morning at half past ten on RTE Radio 1 Extra or any time at all on the RTE Radio Player. And you can also drop a line to the programme at faith at rte.ie.